We're in James chapter 4 today. If you open your Bibles there, and if you don't have a Bible, I think we have one on the back table, and you can read along. Is that not so? Yeah, color red. That's what they look like. There you go. James chapter 4. It's near the back of your Bible. Just after Hebrews. James chapter 4. Now listen to me. The path to peace and satisfaction. Doesn't that sound corny? The path to peace and satisfaction. That is hard to find. And what doesn't help is that we are convinced that we know where it is. And we're wrong. In fact, there we are working for our happiness and we're trying to get satisfied and what we pursue actually makes for conflict everywhere and even in the church. James this morning is not speaking to a world without Jesus. He's speaking to the church, people who believe in Jesus. So, we in the church, we have to learn a different way to get peace and satisfaction. And the crazy thing is, is that none of us would think to look for peace and satisfaction where it is to be found. And that is in weeping and mourning in repentance. But the good news today is that it's possible to be satisfied in a way that makes peace when we repent. So I'm reading in James chapter 4. Here we go. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Man, I feel like I'm an old-time preacher this morning. And this isn't warm and cuddly stuff, is it? But here's James, and he expects that we will have quarrels, conflicts right here in the church. Now, you know, he's writing to people that he's never met, and for sure he's never met us, right? But he says plainly, you have conflicts. Isn't that crazy? And he says the sources of your conflicts are your pleasures. Those are the things that motivate us, the, the things that we do to be happy, right? And every single one of us works so that we can be satisfied and happy. Those are two sides of the same coin. You can't be happy if you're not satisfied. And you can't be satisfied if you're not happy. So it's the same thing, and we work for it. And here's our equation. When I get what I want, then I'll be happy. Does that sound familiar? Okay. You and me, we got the same equation. It's simple, isn't it? It's almost like one plus one. When I get what I want, then I'll be happy. And we know what's going to make us happy, don't we? When I get enough to eat, then I'll be happy. That's pretty simple. And I don't like being in pain. I don't know about anybody else. But pain is not my thing. So I like to feel good. Being in want doesn't make me happy. So I like to have all of my needs met. And when I see cool things, I want them, right? So I'll be cruising along and see some, some advert, and I go, oh, that's neat. I like that. I would like to get some. I like it when I'm considered special by people. And I step into the room. Every head turns. Ooh, Rob is here. And inside, I'm going, oh, that's okay. That's all right. That's okay, everybody. It's just me. So when people don't think I'm worth very much, I don't like that. I think, well, who do they think they are, right? 
I like to be thought of as special, skilled, wonderful, happiness. And if somebody doesn't think that about me, it bugs me. So I like feeling superior because deep down in my heart, I am superior. You know, Muhammad Ali was just saying what everybody else knows to be true. I am the greatest. I am the greatest. Now, James says that these desires wage war in our members. Now, this is the clue that these desires are not godly. They're natural. And James has already told us about the wisdom that comes from below. In verse 15 of chapter 3, he says, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Because he says, Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So it's self-seeking. It's a wisdom that doesn't center on God. It centers on myself. And in the same way, our desires don't naturally center on God, on pleasing God, but on pleasing me. That's what the entire universe is supposed to do as it revolves around me. Everything is supposed to work out for me. Now, that all adds up to what John calls in his first epistle, chapter 2, he calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. That's the kind of stuff I was talking about. Getting enough to eat, getting enough to drink, getting enough sex, getting what I'm looking at, and making sure that everybody else thinks I'm a great guy. That's what it comes down to. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Now, if these needs aren't met, then we got conflict. Like, why aren't they met? Who is preventing me from meeting my needs? Now, what kind of conflicts do we have in the church? Do we have conflicts in the church? The answer is yes. Leadership struggles. Who is the boss? And if my pastor tells me to do something, do I obey him? You know, there are, there are leaders in the church who will tell you what to do, how much to give, who to marry, what you're supposed to do with your life. Are you supposed to obey them? And what happens if you don't? How are we going to spend the money? Whose way are we going to do things? Who gets the perks? How come I don't get the best parking spot? 
I've heard of all kind of stuff. Just over the weekend, I was praying with some pastors. And one guy, one pastor says, well, a guy that used to be my elder, he just called up and said, we've been praying about this for a long time. We're leaving. So he hasn't been talking, no communication, just boom, I'm gone. Another guy talked about this guy decided that he was a heretic and began writing to everybody he knew about this pastor and was slamming him. Blogs on the internet, they were getting his letters. And it's just this guy decides, I'm going to put an end to this pastor once and for all. Well, conflicts. Who's accepted in the church? Who's in the A crowd? Who's in the everybody else crowd? And who's in the we don't even want to touch them crowd? Sometimes you walk into a church and it's the, the fellowship temperature is like freezing. Not like our church. The boiler got fixed. So we can live and breathe and we're okay here. Thank you, Lord. But you walk into a church, you sit down and nobody talks to you and you don't talk to anybody and you get up and you walk out and you go, what was that? Now, we've never really had a fight in this church. No splits. It's been fabulous. But maybe you've had a church experience where there's just been conflict. And people get in each other's faces. And James is saying that this all comes out from seeking our own interests. And the things that please us actually work to create conflict. Because there's competition, which, as we know, is the opposite of peace. So there's competition. There's winners. There's losers. And it's all because people are looking out for themselves for satisfaction and happiness. And the equation is, when I get what I want, I'll be happy. And if I don't get what I want, I'm unhappy. Now, it's a simple equation, but we know that it doesn't work. And you get into conflicts with people and God. Now, James says here, you lust and do not have. That word for lust is a word that means strong desire. And he says, you do not have. And then he says, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You don't get it. It doesn't work. And this is a universal law. I cannot be happy and satisfied when I seek my own happiness and satisfaction. Did you get that? If I focus on getting my own happiness and satisfaction, I can't get it. Now, this is, this is true for everybody. It works for unbelievers who have nothing to do with the church. 
Everybody in the world is focused on, I want enough food, I want enough drink, I want enough sex, I want people to think I'm great, and I want things. And they're sincerely focused on what they're convinced is going to make them happy. And it's the same old stuff. And they go, well, they're different, but I'm me, and I know it'll work. If I get enough, I know I'll be happy. They're different, but I know this will work. But you know, it doesn't work in the church any more than it works in the world. We are more subtle sometimes, but we still go after the same basic things. We want recognition. We like having authority and power. We like people to say, wow, what a cool church you have. <laughs> yeah, I know. We're not like the other guys. And when we don't get the attention, we go, what's that? Why did I get snubbed right there? Why didn't I get picked? Why didn't they talk with me about this decision? Why didn't they tell me? They just want their own way. Now, James says our response is murder and competition. That's a little intense, isn't it? Just a slap in the face. Murder? Really? In the church? Well, remember, you don't have to pull a gun out during the service and kill somebody to murder them. Jesus said, all you got to do is hate them in your heart. And it is just the same as if you pulled out a knife and killed them. So all you have to do is resent somebody and treat them coldly. Don't talk to them. And then you can get to that point where you actually fight against somebody and quarrel and disagree and just if you don't get you can just talk to your wife and get her to vote for you they did this and they did that so we have murdering and coveting going on in the church But we also have a conflict with God. Notice this. He says, you don't have because you don't ask, there in verse 2. And it shows that what we seek is not godly because we're not even asking God about it. God, I want you to make me the biggest thing in the world. I want everybody to just be flabbergasted when I walk in the room. Could I have a halo, please? So everybody knows how spiritual I am? We don't think about this stuff. You know why? Because God is the God of four walls. And when we leave those four walls, we don't even think about asking God. Okay, that's one. And I'm talking about me, guys, so I'm not yelling at you. This is pastor telling on himself day. But then what happens when we do pray? 
He says you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss. And that means badly. That means blah. You call that a prayer? See, we're asking in a way that God is guaranteed to not answer because he's not going to answer a prayer. Yes, there is somebody screaming out there, isn't there? We're asking in a way that God would never answer because he's not going to gratify our sin. He's not going to help us. We pray for things that are self-centered. And it's not like Jesus who prays, not my will, but yours be done. So we have a conflict with men and we have a conflict with God. It's just conflict. And so James says, when we seek after our own happiness and our own desires, that's sin. And he calls it adultery. Now, that means being unfaithful to your wife or your husband. You make a covenant, a holy promise before God that you will love, honor, obey, submit. And then you break that oath, that covenant, by going for satisfaction for your needs outside that relationship. And that's what Christians do. We go outside our covenant with Jesus and we start looking for happiness and satisfaction somewhere else. And not only is that adultery, but it's idolatry. We're looking for some other God to give happiness and satisfaction other than Jesus. And James says, when we do that, we're friends with the world. We're no different. We're just like them. That's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not from the Father. It's from the world. And we become enemies of God. Can you imagine? We're sitting in church. We're reading our Bibles. We're listening to Pastor What's-His-Face. We're praying, and we're an enemy of God. Now, I do that, and so do you. And so did people that the Apostle Paul know personally in his lifetime. Listen to what he says from Philippians chapter 3. He says, brethren, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things." Paul knew people in church who are enemies of God. And it, it broke his heart. Now, 
You notice verse 5, and James says, Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? And the problem you'll notice with that is that there isn't an exact verse in the Old Testament scriptures phrased like that. So it's been a really tough verse to explain. And you know, I've read this over and over and over during the years. And it seems to me that really the whole scripture says this. It's not just one isolated little bit that says God yearns for us jealously. It's the entire scripture. Because God loves his people. And when they go away from him, he is rightly jealous. Just like a wife would be when she finds out her husband has been seeing another woman. She ought to feel jealous. There should be something wrong if we didn't. Well, you know, that's the way God feels. Because any other relationship is not healthy. And God knows that when we go after some other God, it's not healthy. We're going to destroy our lives. So it's right for him to be jealous. Because when we commit adultery against God, we forfeit our lives. But look at verse 6. He gives more grace, says James. More grace. And some translations have greater grace. You think, okay, greater than what? And here's some answers. He gives grace greater than us. Greater than my desires for satisfaction and happiness. Greater than my darkened understanding. Greater than my immaturity. He gives grace that's greater than the devil. Do you know what he means by that? He gives greater grace. God is not going to let the devil win in your life. His grace and his loving kindness for you is greater than the devil. And God gives a grace that is greater than your sin. He gives cleansing. And he gives forgiveness. And change of mind. Change of life. He restores what you thought was gone forever. And he blesses, and he makes you happy, and he makes you satisfied. Now, the place where this grace is found is in the last place we would ever think of to find happiness and satisfaction. 
and that is in repentance. Now, to repent means to change your mind. And because you change your mind and the way you think, you change your life. So I've been going this way with my life. And I realize, oh my goodness, that's the wrong direction. So because I realize the right direction is this way, that I actually turn around and I face this direction and I walk this direction. That's why when people ask John the Baptist, who was preaching repentance, he said, what do we do? He says, do works worthy of repentance. If you know you're wrong, then you do the right things. Quit doing the wrong things. Okay, so I'm going like this, and I realize, oh my gosh, I'm wrong. Well, I don't keep walking this way. I'm going to turn and walk this way. And make sure that I don't face this way, and then keep walking this way. Right? That doesn't work. It's a change of mind that results in a change of life. Now, this thing about repentance... This is how we became Christians in the very beginning. I thought everything was okay. And Jesus showed me, no, nothing is okay. And we had to make a choice, either continue on in sin or turn around and follow Jesus. You know, we made this really amazing decision. I'm wrong. I need Jesus to forgive me. I need to turn around. And I'm going to follow Jesus now. And I'm going to go to church. And I'm going to read my Bible. We actually did that. Right? I hope you did that. You still can do that. But you know how we begin is how we continue as Christians. Like that wasn't a one-time event that we repent and turn around. The reality is we repent and turn around every time we find ourselves going the wrong direction. We go up, wrong direction, all over again. God help me. Now, this section of James here is talking about repentance, and he gives us seven sharp commands. He barks them out. That's not loving and warm and cuddly and, oh, there, dear. <laughs> but he says, this is what you need to do. So look what he says in verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. This is the first one. Submit to God. And it means quit fighting with Him. Like you know better than God what is going to satisfy you and make you happy. You quit fighting and making deals and saying, can we sit down and work this thing out so I get what I want and you get what you want, but mostly I get what I want. 
you give in. And you say, whatever you want. You know, you stop planning for your happiness like you knew what's going to make you happy. Because the reality is, none of us know what's going to make us happy. We haven't got a clue. And I know that those times in my life when I say, you know what, I don't care anymore. This is so awful to find myself in opposition to you that I don't care anymore. You do this. You figure it out. Every time he's done that, it's been something completely other than what I thought. And I'm so embarrassed. I have to say, this fits me like a glove, and I never would have picked this in a million years. I'm so sorry. You know. You already know, and I'm guessing, and I'm miles off. I'm so sorry. So, you know, we don't know what we're doing. This is an axiom of life. We don't know. We have no idea. So you say, okay, God, you know. Isn't that great that God doesn't have to guess and hope he's going to get it right? It fits every single time, and it's the right color because God knows. So... I don't have to know how God is going to satisfy me and make me happy. The details are not important. But I say, okay, whatever you want. I don't have to notice what God is going to do in my life and say, well, okay, it looks pretty good. You're doing a good job. Keep it up. What do I have to say to God? Forget that. I go, you know, whatever you want. Whatever you want. So, you know, submit to God's will. God is good, and his will is good and acceptable and perfect. And you say, whatever you want that's going to make you happy, that's what I want. And I don't know what that is. So you lead me and guide me. Now, here's the second command. Look what he says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, the point about resisting the devil is it's not isolated. It's part and parcel with submitting to God. Do you know that when you submit to God, you immediately begin resisting the devil? So your job is not to go out there and resist the devil. You know that doesn't work. Because the devil comes up and says, you don't mean that. You know you don't mean that. Now come with me. And you go, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you got me there. So we're not to just resist the devil until oh, I gave in. You know, resist means to actually resist successfully. And you go, oh. How am I going to do that? I have never done that in my entire life. Now I'm getting a little bit anxious here. What do you mean I have to do this successfully? Can't I just fail a lot at it? I tried. No, 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 no. Let's jump up to the big leagues. 
This is how you really do it. The first thing you do is you submit to God. And then, while you submit to God, you are resisting the devil. And the devil flees because he cannot coexist in the presence of God. So you don't have to know what the magic ninja moves are to get rid of the devil. You don't have to be an expert or know anything about it, but you submit to God and you know, you are dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty and you don't have to work so hard at resisting the devil because you're doing it already. And the devil has to flee because there is no room for him while you're in the presence of God. So that's why resist the devil is always the second command. But the first one is submit to God. Do that first. Then he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You think, well, how do I draw near to God? Where do I go? And you might think, you know, I'm a sinner. How can I draw near God? How can I come to him as I am? How do I do that? And this is what it says in Psalm 145. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. So you can call out to the Lord and say, you know what? I'm in a bad state. I am all messed up. And God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, overflowing in loving kindness and truth. And you can call upon the Lord in truth and he will hear you. And then James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's how you cleanse your hearts and your hands. So you come to God by the cross of Jesus. There's no other way to come to him. You have to look at the cross and Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then James says, lament and mourn and weep. And this is where we stop and go, really? You mean, really? But think about it for a minute. Think about it. We avoid mourning. We don't like going to funerals. 
We don't want to be unhappy. We want to be happy. And yet we do all the things that instead make nothing but conflict. This is something completely different. This is starting with sadness and mourning like somebody died. Who died? Well, Jesus did. Why did he die? For my sins. My sins put Jesus on the cross. And you know what you do is you let it sink in. The fact that you're committing adultery against God. That you're committing idolatry against God. That your sin wastes his time that your sin put Jesus on the cross, and you let this sink in. Now, this isn't positive confession. This is what you call negative confession. But all you're doing is confessing the truth, and you let it work its way into your heart because God says, Return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And rend your heart and not your garment. It's not an outward thing, but it's an inward thing. And God is interested in your heart. So James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And this is the thing. You're in the presence of God. Who are you in the presence of God? In that shadow of the Almighty, who are you? And you have to be aware of who you are in the presence of the Lord because he's in the room with you. Are you aware of that? Or have you been ignoring the Lord? Now, who you are in the presence of the Lord, that's who you really are. It's not what everybody thinks about you, how many likes you get. It doesn't matter if they think you're fabulous. It doesn't matter if they think you're scum. What is that in comparison to who God thinks and knows you really are? Like, can you spin with God? Can you say, well, it's what she said. It's what he did to me. That person, it's all their fault. And you know, when you're in God's presence, you have to take the responsibility and say, you know what, it's, it's me. It's how you look to God that really matters, doesn't it? And you have to take a long look at yourself in God, His presence, and say, that's what I really am. Now, here's what happens when you take responsibility, when you're in the presence of God, when you see who you are in His presence, 
Here's the miracle. You know you deserve all his punishment. You deserve a lot worse than you're getting right now. If God chose to lower the boom and throw you into hell, you would have to say, you're doing the universe a favor. And you would believe it because it's true. But here's what he does to somebody who is broken and crumbled in front of him. He actually lifts them up. Now, I have been lifted up when I've been in that state where I know I haven't got a leg to stand on. I'm guilty, guilty, guilty. And then this miracle happens when God lifts me up. Now, you know, I would not do that because if you really take God's standpoint and look at your life, you know you have no excuse. You just are a self-seeking person. I am a self-seeking person. I like my desires. I love my sin. But I'm confessing I love something else more than you. And at a certain point, God, he lifts you up. And there is that peace. And there's a happiness. But it's not based on anything in this world. But it is based on something true and eternal. God loves you. And he loves you with everlasting love. And if you think about it, before he made anything, he knew you and he loved you. He has always left you. How can that be? But just realize, he loves you always. And if he lifts you up, and if he gives you his love, then what does it matter? Anything else around you? Does it matter if you get your way? Does it matter when somebody says something and it hurts you? Or you don't get this, or you don't get that. Or something happens and you say, well, I don't like that. Do you care at this moment? You know what? Nothing matters except the fact that God loves you. And that's the most important thing in the world. And guess what? You already have it. You don't have to go and get it. You don't have to compete with somebody for it and push them down so that you can get higher. You don't care anymore. You're on the floor. And the miracle is that God is right there on the floor with you. And it's okay. So you know what? It's not you letting yourself off the hook. It's God saying, it's okay now. And you have peace and you have happiness. Because God is blessing and you're repenting. So we got to watch out in our souls. And we got to remember there is no such thing as this equation. When I get what I want, then I'm happy. That's not true. 
when we have conflicts and quarrels and disappointments, discouragement, that means it's time to seek the Lord. Are you getting what you need? Are you getting the love of God? Are you looking for something else to fit in there and you're not getting it so you got this itch you can't scratch. It's like... The snarling Christian has got to take a minute and think, what am I doing? And if you're not satisfied with God, then you're going to look for satisfaction in some other area and the devil is going to take advantage of that. He's looking. Now the Apostle Peter says in chapter 5 of his first epistle, resist the devil firm in your faith. And that, again, speaks about relationship. And here's how you're firm in your faith. You strengthen your relationship with God by repenting. Now, Charles Simeon did this. And you go, who cares? Who's Charles Simeon? He is the most amazing guy that I've ever encountered. And I've, I've got books about him. Fascinating life. Born 1759. And he was born into a vacuum of Christianity. Nobody to preach to him or tell him what he ought to be or do. And he was as lost as you can get. When he went to Cambridge, 19 years old, the first thing they told him was, you're going to celebrate Holy Communion with us. And it scared him to death. Because he didn't know much, but he did know that if you eat and drink in an unworthy way, you eat and drink damnation on you. And he thought, I'm going to hell. <laughs> and it scared the daylights out of him. And he tried to get right, and he couldn't figure out how to do it. Nobody knew. So somewhere he found out that just as the high priest transferred the sins of the people to the sacrifice, we transfer our sins to Jesus. He says, is that how it works? And he did it, and he found, I'm okay now. I can, I can take communion, and I'm going to live. Now, what happened to him is that he actually became a... Uh, the pastor of one of the churches there in Cambridge. And he was there from 1782 until his death in 1836. That's a lot of numbers there. It's over 50 years. And here's the thing about Simeon. He developed his life with God, again, in a vacuum because there was nobody to tell him, this is how you do it. So from his own reading of Scripture... Here's what he developed, a lifestyle of repentance. He humbled himself on a regular basis every day, and he let God lift him up every day. Now, this is what he says. Repentance is in every view so desirable, so necessary, 
so suited to honor God that I seek that above all. The tender heart, the broken and contrite spirit are to me far above all the joys that I could ever hope for in this veil of tears. I long to be in my proper place, my hand on my mouth and my mouth in the dust. I feel this to be safe ground. Here I cannot err. I am sure that whatever God may despise, he will not despise the broken and contrite heart. And you can say, whoa, that's, that's morbid. I mean, that's how you start your day with weeping and mourning? Well, you can say that or you can experience closeness to God, casting all of your burden on him and finding that he's lifting you up. This is how you are divinely happy. Now, what about the other stuff? What about all the other needs for happiness and satisfaction? Well, Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know, God can give you things and you can also take them away too. But whatever he does, you're not fighting with him or quarreling with people. And what God is going to do is satisfy you with eternal things. That is what you really need. So think about this. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can actually confess everything that's wrong in our lives. And instead of crushing us, you will actually lift us up and satisfy our hearts and give us peace. And this morning, we are well aware of places where we are conflicting with people and with you. And we want to submit to you this morning. We want to resist the devil and draw near and have you bless. So help us to do this. And especially when we have time and nobody's looking, it's just us and you. We want to make it right and confess the truth, the desires, the conflicts, our failures. And we pray, Lord, that you would meet with us even right now and wash and cleanse. Thank you, Lord, that you give grace to the humble. Do that with us. 
We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.